Goodly people of the interwebs, welcome, welcome. This is Ken. This is a Ken Burton podcast story, part of the Unredacted series. And boys and girls, it's that time of year again. <laughs> Seriously, these Christmases, honestly, when you, the older you get, the quicker they seem to come around, you know. And it's it's quite bizarre, really, because. We have had the strangest year I can remember. I mean, we, my wife and I, we sold our house um, and moved into rented accommodation. Lots of reasons for that. Uh, partly we needed to be in a different location. Partly we needed to give my lad a big chunk so that he could um, get himself on the housing market. Uh, housing ladder which he's now done and he moves in in January which is brilliant news and he's really looking forward to it and everything's rosy in the garden but it means that come January we don't need a four bed 200 year old cottage anymore so we'll be moving again and uh, to be honest I think that's a good thing (laughs) this house is fucking freezing all the time (laughs) it never gets warm it just never gets warm But (laughs) enough about my problems. So, yeah, it's that time of year again, and it's Christmas, and, um, God, it's weird. Christmases just come, they go, they come, they go. There's nothing magical about this year. There's nothing special about this year at all. We've gone through, uh, if you're outside the UK, you, you might not be aware that we've gone through the most horrendous time uh, financially, everybody, everybody's been fucked, everybody. And you're getting fucked no matter which which way you turn around. The government are fucking you left, right and centre. We've got a prime minister who is in it for the money. Knowing full well that he's going to get voted out of office next year, he is making as much money as he possibly can personally. And then he's gone and he doesn't give a shit. He doesn't care that the electricity and the gas companies and the oil companies are charging us an absolute fortune for our basic needs of heat and light and cooking. And oh, it's horrendous. Everyone's taking the piss. Everyone. Everyone's putting the prices up like you wouldn't believe and blaming it on this. um, Well, energy prices have gone up and we need to pass it on. Even companies that don't rely on that <coughs> are um, are still putting their prices through the roof. Everybody is getting fucked. Everybody. How people are managing is beyond me at the moment. But we have to get rid of this Tory government. I don't think Labour are going to be any better. So we have some tough decisions to make as a country. And we need to make them. We need to make them. We need reform. We've got so many migrants coming into this country. And I'll tell you how bad this government is. So they've come up with this policy about, uh, well, we're going to send people to Rwanda. So they've given Rwanda £200 million and said, can you take our asylum seekers? And they've gone, yeah, we'll take you £200 million. Thanks very much. And... <laughs> and the maximum, even even if one single asylum seeker is put on a plane, the maximum 
per year that we can send back is 200 people that we can send to Rwanda. It's 200 people a day that are arriving in this country. Around about 800 a week are arriving in this country on small boats. And that's that's not to counter the amount of people that are coming in legally on these student visas and bringing families with them for universities that don't exist. They're just an office somewhere. It is crazy. The government has just lost control, completely lost control. Everybody's taking the piss. Everybody, everybody, all these companies are just fucking Mr. Average left, right and centre. They really are. Anyway, that's my rant over. <laughs> I do hope you enjoyed it. This was the Ken Burton Rant Show. No, it isn't. Right, so... Um, oh, I got distracted there. I'm d I've got the telly on in the background. There's a woman just taking the top off. Wee. Okay, so... <laughs> let's get back to where we're going. Christmas. Christmas. Everyone's having a lean Christmas. I just want to get this year over with. I just want to move on. Uh, I'm not really worried about this Christmas so badly that we're not even buying presents for each other. Um, uh, we bought my lad some stuff for his new house. Apart from that, my wife and I haven't even bought each other presents because, and we've got a tree up, few decorations. We've gone through the motions. She's gone through the motions. Um, but apart from that, we just, you know, just want to get it over with. Get it done and dusted. Contrast that to something that came up a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to somebody about the magical Christmas. People will remember this. If you are old enough and you live in Coventry and you've always lived in Coventry, there is a very good chance you will remember 1981 because it was... The magical Christmas. And people called it that. Everybody called it that. I don't know what happened that year. I've never experienced it before. I'd, I've never experienced it since. It was magical. Everybody was just so happy. You know. Um, I was working for the family. Um, doing bits and pieces. I was 16 years old. I was starting to earn money at that point. We'd left school. Um, I'd been rejected for the army, but apart from that, money started to roll in. Um, everything was just working so fucking well. But it was the people. I really can't get my head around what happened in 1981. Maybe somebody can enlighten me, but everybody was just overjoyed. Everybody you met. You would walk walk around in the town centre and people would smile at you and say, good morning, how are you? That never happened before. Hasn't happened since. <laughs> it's really weird. But it happened that year. And then there was the Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve, 1981. Myself and two friends went into the town centre. Okay. Everybody was um, dressed up to the nines. I mean, we we had our best shirts on, our best trousers, our best shoes. 
The girls were absolutely fantastic that year. Every pub you went into, it was like you were you were staring at supermodels everywhere. And even the girls that you wouldn't normally look at slapped on the makeup, put a tiny dress on, and were just having the time of their lives. The atmosphere in the town centre. Oh, if you could bottle it, you would make millions. It was fantastic. The girls made that New Year's Eve because for some reason, I don't know how it started, but the girls decided that it was a free-for-all over who they were snogging that night. So if you were in a pub and you walked up to the bar, some girl would come up behind you turn you around and give you a snog and say happy Christmas and then walk away. <laughs> I was 16. I spent the entire night with a boner. It was, <laughs> it was just crazy. It was crazy. The end of the night, nothing would spoil that night, right? Nothing would spoil it. We would, we were drinking with the bouncers in the pubs and the clubs and it oh it was just fantastic end of the night i think there were um probably about 30 people because you couldn't get a taxi so there were about 30 people all walking from the town center back to where i lived in Woolenhall. uh and it's it's a distance i tell you take you a good hour to walk um a bit less if you were walking on your own maybe but we were with a crowd and so we all we all lived in that area so we all kind of walked together we'd already bought um i mean wine bars were a thing back then so we'd already got a couple of bottles and we were sharing those out we were we were all we all smoked back then um, a lot of the girls couldn't walk in their shoes, so they took their shoes off and they were in bare feet walking back. We had the time of our lives. I walked to the front door of my house uh, and I, I, I had a, just a moment to reflect on what had happened. And my friend was with me and uh, I shook his hand, gave him a kind of man hug thing. And he looked at me and he said, Ken, it will never be any better than this ever again. And he was right. It never was. I don't know what happened in 1981. Anyone that's listening to this that is old enough to remember 1981, please enlighten me on Twitter. Uh, but I have no idea what happened in 1981. <clears throat> but it was fantastic and it, it was wonderful. And it, it it was almost like a rite of passage for us. A few of us, 16-year-olds, and all of a sudden we're, we're being hit on by 20-year-old, 25-year-old girls 
who you didn't stand a chance with on a normal day. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Following year, not so good. 83, definitely not so good. 84, I had a problem in 84. <laughs> I didn't go out that Christmas. Um, but that's how it was. 81, 1981. The magical year. The magical Christmas. Anyway, let's get on with the podcast story. So, um, yeah, so this is uh, part of the Unredacted series. And this series, we talk about things that we couldn't talk about in any one of the 200 podcasts we've made so far. Uh, bit of a disclaimer, any all parts of this podcast may or may not be true. It is up to you to decide whether or not you think it is, it isn't, or somewhere in between. You want to message me, talk about it, put something on Twitter, we can talk. Um, all characters have had their names changed uh, to protect the innocent and the not-so-innocent. So, unredacted. I couldn't talk about this one because, not because of a particular person, but b because of a particular thing that used to happen, an event that used to happen every year and it was never discussed. We never talked about it. We talked about it amongst ourselves. We talked about it with the members of the family. And if you don't understand who I'm talking about when I talk about the family, if you're new to these podcasts, please go back and listen to the some of the old ones. But basically, I and my friends were fag-end gangsters, okay? When we left school, I couldn't get in the army. I started doing fag end work for the family who ran the city, ran every single criminal enterprise in the city. Uh, and slowly over the years, I, I moved up the ranks of that. I never got very far, but I moved up the ranks. But this was 1980s Coventry. You might get a few Soprano references in here or Craze references because that's the only thing I can liken it to. Um, and it was like that. We did fag-end work. We did the shit work no one else wanted to do. Go and sit outside a house for four hours. Tell me who goes in. Um, go and sit outside these premises. Let me know the uh, registration numbers of the lorries that go in and out and what time they went in and out. All of that sort of stuff we would end up doing. But we got paid for it and we got paid really well. The family were, um, they were like gods to us. You would never, you would never make eye contact if you came across a member of the family. Never speak to them unless they're speaking to you. They, they were so high up the tree that you could only dream about, you know, it would, it would have made my, my year if a single family member had have said hello to me. You know? <laughs> but there you go. The family did a lot of bad. They did a lot of good as well. And when when conversations go out, and I'm, I'm amazed nobody's written a book about these guys, when the conversations go out about um, the family, nobody seems to 
remember the good bits. They talk about, oh, do you remember when such and such disappeared? Oh, yeah, he ended up in concrete. Or, or he's propping up the M6. Or, you know, he's part of the footings on the A14. Yeah, all that, that sort of stuff is the only thing you hear of. You, people never talk about the fact that if somebody burgled an old lady, that guy would be found. The goods would be returned to her. And he would more than likely have his legs broken so that he doesn't do it again. <laughs> Let's just make him incapable of climbing through another window. Um, that to me was good. A lot of people will look at that and say, no, that was bad. That wasn't good at all. Should have gone to the police. Well, the police wouldn't do a great deal back then. Um, burglary, Christ, lip service. Uh, and I, I think it's it's still a bit that way today. But, you know, you get burgled, you phone the police, they give you a crime number and tell you to claim on your insurance. And uh, it's not the way, is it? It's not the way. But unless that burglary back in the 1980s in Coventry, unless that burglary was sanctioned and it was done for a reason, you would likely get your legs broken if you did that. Seriously. So, <laughs> um, and I know this because I witnessed it on more than one occasion. I assisted in tracking people down on more than one occasion. Um, so, yeah. They, they people only ever talk about the bad and not the good and that's a real shame and we're going to talk about the good and the reason why uh this is part of the unredacted and i couldn't talk about this before is because this was a big big secret back in the day it was um uh for bolton to uh ever discuss this with anyone outside of your circle anyone who wasn't involved with the family. There were, there were people within our circle we didn't talk about this with. Um, and it, I, d I don't know why it was such a secret, but it was a secret. I guess, I guess it would make the family look um, caring and in so doing make them look weak. I'm not really sure, but it was just never talked about. So um, what we're going to talk about today is what we used to call spare money. Uh, spare money came in various forms. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So if somebody was in the city and they've been up to no good and they got ran out of the city, and maybe they got their ass kicked and were allowed to go. Maybe they'd committed some naughties and went of their own accord. What we would do, or what the family would instruct us to do, is to clear the house that they lived in. More often than not, these are rented properties, but people had furniture. Uh, they had goods and chattels that were in these houses. Um, what we would do is we would turn up, uh, make an inventory of everything that was in there, and then all of their stuff would get put in the back of a van and sent off to auction. A couple of reasons why that happened. Um, more often than not, these guys owed the family, and the family wanted their money back. 
so that's kind of one aspect to it. But um, also, also if this is going to sound bad, if somebody let's go back to our analogy of the burglar. If the burglar had um, stolen from an old lady and we got hold of him, uh, we would get sent round his house. We would um, go through the house with a fine tooth comb, looking for anything else he's stolen with the intention of returning it to an owner. And uh, if there was any money found, <clears throat> and more often than not, there was money found, that would go and be classed as spare money. Uh, so that's that's basically how it worked. There were lots of reasons why spare money happened. Um, if they if they did a warehouse job, uh, and you know they were there to get X amount of VCR video recorders, uh, and they loaded a lorry with. 200 video recorders or whatever that were destined to go somewhere to be sold off whatever if there was money in the office petty cash or whatever they'd take that and then that would become spare money now over the years and certainly year by year and i, I must admit i didn't find this out until i was i've been working for the family a good couple of years that would become spare money and spare money would go into a fund it would be held so if even sometimes when the family were owed that money they wouldn't take it they'd put it in the fund at the end of each year usually around about the beginning of december we would be instructed to distribute some of this money and it got distributed in different ways. So um, first thing that, not something I'd do, but the first thing that they would do is they would go to the local hospital, speak to somebody on the children's wards and say, what do you need? TVs, video games, toys for the kids, um, Walkmans, Discmans. What, what do you need? What do you need this Christmas for these kids that were in, in hospital? And whatever it was, it would be bought and all the money come out of the spare money fund. Okay, that's how it worked. So um, there were quite a few children's social services care homes uh, in the city and It'd be exactly the same thing. We'd go over, we'd find out what they wanted, what do they need, what have you got that needs replacing, and we'd replace it. We'd do that. The other aspect of it was the individual aspect. Um, if you knew somebody, single parent, um, somebody that's been lost their job, been struggling with the bills, can't afford Christmas, you could get them a handout. You you could very very easily just say, look, I've got this this family. He lost his job. He's um, uh, he's got a problem with his leg. He can't work. 
the family's on welfare, they can't afford Christmas, and it would be a case of say no more, take 500, go and give it to the family. And that's what we do. It was incredible. It was, it was such a lovely gesture and a lovely time of year to do it. You honestly felt like Father Christmas. You really did. Every year we did this. And this is where that's the back story to our story, which is about Maggie. Where I lived, uh, it was four different sets of apartment blocks. And there were three bedroom apartments. Um, but they were they were really weird. They were very, very small for three bedrooms. Uh, there were the two bedroom ones with the balconies, and I have one of those. Uh, and they were massive. They were huge. Rooms were big. The bedrooms were big. Had a separate bathroom and toilet. Um, kitchens were big. I mean, considering it was an apartment, they were bloody huge. And it had a massive balcony. Mm. Underneath, right at the bottom, ground floor, were the one-bedroom departments. And there were uh, probably about 30 of those in the four blocks. And then the block opposite uh, where we were, were all the bedsits. <clears throat> and these were, you open the front door and you're immediately into a square room off to your left would be a uh, bathroom very tiny bathroom um, and the next to that would be another little room with a very tiny kitchen and then you've got your fairly small lounge uh, and at the top end of that would be a bed and so that's why they call them bedsits. Studios, I think they call them now. But it wasn't. It was a bedsit. They were the cheapest of the cheap. Okay. Um, you couldn't get cheaper than one of those. And uh, we there were probably bedsits. Oh, I reckon there were 50. Probably about 50 in this block over um, two floors. One year, and the year that we're talking about, uh, I'm sat in my flat. There's probably 10 people with me. And uh, I can't remember what we were doing. Probably just watching TV or something. But the doorbell went, um, which was unusual, because anybody I knew just let themselves in. <laughs> just walked in. I could be stark bollock naked, but they were just walking. Why not? So um, doorbell went. So I go to get it thinking it's postman or something like that. And um, it is a young lady stood there who I later found out was called Maggie. And she said, and she looked in a right state and she said, I am so, so sorry I said, for what? She said, I've bumped your car. I was like, what? 
we all, everyone in the block, shared a car park. And uh, <laughs> Maggie had bumped my car. So I went downstairs um, and a couple of the lads followed me. And uh, we we had a look and she she just wasn't in a good place. <laughs> she was so panicky, so panicky. I said, how do you know it's mine? She said, oh, somebody heard it and they said it was your car. And oh, right, okay. <laughs> went, went downstairs and um, next to my car, parked next to my car, is the shittiest piece of crap Volkswagen Polo you've ever seen in your life. For a start, this thing was green, right? Which was an awful colour that Volkswagen used to use. Awful, horrible colour. The car was just fucked. I, it, if it had an MOT, I would be amazed. But <laughs> I went over, had a look, and uh, I think, um, if I remember correctly, I'd got the Jag at that point. I think I was driving a Jag. I didn't have that for very long, but I, I was driving the Jag, and... Sure enough, she had uh, tried to reverse into a space and caught my front wing and wheel arch. And it it, uh, it wasn't great. Although cars back then were made of proper metal, so <laughs> it didn't do a huge amount of damage, but it didn't look great. It, it was more of a scrape than anything else. Look at her car. It was hard to tell where she'd done it. It was that fucked. Honestly, every panel on that car was knackered. So, uh, but she looked at it and she, and she went, oh, she said, my God, um, I I will speak to my insurance. Oh, that's going to put my insurance up. And um, she was just in a completely bad way. And I said to her, do you live here? Are you visiting? She said, no, I've just moved into one of the uh, bedsits. Uh, with my lad and um, I went oh right okay uh, well which one is yours and she pointed it out gave me the number and uh, I said to her well look I can't do it now but what I'll do is I'll um, take it into a friend of mine I know a lot of people in the motor trade take it into a friend of mine get him to put a price on it and I'll come and see you tomorrow and uh, off she went crying as she went <laughs> so she went off following day i took the motor down to a mate of mine said what's that going to take and he, he said uh oh i'll just do it don't worry about it and i was like no it's no i've got to give you something for it now we we did work for this guy we did repo work for this guy and uh he said yeah i call it a favor I said no 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 i'll pay for it i'll pay for it stick a price on it he said well give me a ton all right, okay, 100 quid, fine. He said, I'm only going to flash it, though. I'm not going to, like, you know, make it brand new, but I'll I'll flash it. I'll fix it and flash it. And I was like, right, okay. So uh, following, following afternoon, I go down to see Maggie. I walked in to her bedsit. She had invited me in, by the way. I didn't just walk into her bedsit. And I was shocked, um, 
more than shocked. She'd got a packing crate that had obviously been used for the move with a little telly on it in a corner. She'd got four deck chairs that had obviously seen better days. Looked like somebody had stolen, stolen them off a beach. There were <laughs> four deck chairs in the, in the front room, bedroom area. She hadn't got a bed. She got a blow up, um, what we used to call a lilo. I don't know what they're called now, but it, it was like a blow up mattress thing. And that had got a blanket on it. And I, I was just, Jesus Christ, you have literally got fuck all. And she said, uh, yeah, she said, uh, it, I need to get some furniture. I'm, I'm going to speak to uh, social services and see if they can help me out. And, you know, we'll, tr we'll try and get some. And she was embarrassed. She was more than embarrassed. She was not mortified, but it wasn't her. You could see that that was something that had happened to her, not something she was. She didn't live like that deliberately. And I met a lad and um, he was a bouncy little bugger. He didn't give a shit. He, <laughs> he got his toys in the corner and a few action men and he was playing and, you know, showing me his action man and stuff and it was um it was it was great to meet them and she said um right she said about your car <laughs> and i said yeah good news uh i said um a friend of mine owes me a favor and he's gonna do it for free so hey there you go don't worry about it and she was like oh my god she said i thought you were gonna tell me it was hundreds and I haven't got hundreds. <laughs> and uh, she said I was going to ask if I could pay it off um, on a, a kind of weekly basis. And so I said, yeah, don't, honestly, Maggie, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. There was no way that I was going to ask her for a hundred quid. She, she literally didn't have a pot to piss in. And you could see that, you know, it was that bad. All of her clothes and her lad's clothes were on another packing crate in the corner, just piled up. She, she didn't even have a wardrobe or anywhere to hang her clothes. Now, I, I appreciate she'd just moved in, but come on. You know, it's just, that was just crazy. So, I went back that night to my place and I couldn't stop thinking about this, right? And I, d I don't want to. I don't want to come across as being soft, but it was just. It was just a whole. There's a there's a human being there in need, and I'm in a position to help. And um, I don't know, just something just clicked in my head that I had to do something had to do something and immediately I thought of the spare money fund immediately and uh, I went into the bedroom and made a phone call uh, 
and describe what their situation was. And um, straight away on the other end of the phone, yep, pop round, collect 500 quid. <laughs> right, okay. Brilliant. I can give her 500 quid from the spare money fund. That's brilliant. That's kind of the top end of what they used to give out. But it was great. It was great news. So anyway, following morning, um, <laughs> I go to uh, go and see a friend of mine and then I was going to pop around and collect this money. And um, all I could hear was this clunk, 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 clunk. Clunk, clunk. And I thought, what the fuck is that? And I walked over and it's Maggie trying to start this car. <laughs> Which had effectively died. She got a son in the back, right? <laughs> and I get I think he was he was probably about six, I'm guessing. Maybe a bit younger. Uh but she wasn't very old. I think she was maybe twenty-five. Um, but at the time I, I was, I was probably about 25 and this happened as well. So anyway, there's this clunk, 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 clunk. And so tap, tap, tap on the side of the window. Are you all right there, Maggie? <laughs> and she turned around and looked at me and then looked back at the steering wheel and just a head just fell forward <laughs> as if, as if the world had just collapsed on her shoulders. <laughs> she was just, she just had enough. She just had enough. And she just opened the door because the window didn't work. She opened the door and uh, she walked out and she just looked at me and without saying anything, she just shook her head, got her son out the back of the car and walked over back to the bedsit. <laughs> And I thought, okay, well, this money I've got for her, that would cheer her up. So I'll, I'll go and get that. So I shot off and I went and got the money and met it with a mate. We did some other things and bits and pieces. And uh, I popped round uh, that night to see her. And I said to her, um, I've got some good news for you. Uh, the only problem is you can't ask too many questions. <laughs> and she was like, what? And I gave her an envelope of tenors. And she went, what's this? I said, there's 500 quid in there. And she went, you can't give me this. And I said, no, it's not mine. <laughs> it's not mine. I said, the people I work for have a fund that is available for people like yourselves that could do with a boost. I had a word and they sent this over and uh, it was like pfft, tears before bedtime mate it was it was bawling tears and then she went in and told me her story and I'd like to say that it's a story that was new to me but I must have heard that story a hundred times um she was young she got pregnant moved in with a guy uh the guy was abusive he drank there were all sorts of problems 
over a period of years, he got steadily more violent. And uh, it got to the point where he was hitting the kid. So at that point, she got everything she could, up sticks, got hold of um, the housing association that uh, ran these bedsits, and they put her in there. Uh, she wasn't from Coventry. She was from way out of Coventry. And um, she didn't tell him where she was going. She just up sticks and fucked off. And it's a story I'd heard a hundred times. And it pains me and it, it hurts me that men behave in that fashion. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I think it's cowardly. And I've always had that opinion. And it's just, for me, it's just horrendous. So she's she's got to explain to this six-year-old why daddy's not around anymore. She's also got to try and justify why they've moved into a new town and he hasn't got his friends there. She's got to justify um, the fact that, you know, he'll, he'll be going every day to some school he has no fucking idea about and she's got to get a job. It's a weight, isn't it? It's it. You can't imagine putting yourself in that position. So um, anyway, uh, she got her money, um, and I don't think I spoke to her again for probably about a week. It was early December. This was, um, and it was probably a week, ten days. It was getting on for mid December when. Uh, I'm sat in the flat with the boys and quite a few girls. Um, we'd had a few beers and we were having a good time. And my phone rang. And I'd given Maggie my phone number uh, because potential insurance thing that was going to happen with the cars, which, you know, I'd had the Jag fixed. Um, in fact, it was probably not a Jag by then. <laughs> I had this habit of if I damage the car, I get rid of it and I get another one. I just hate hated driving anything that had been damaged. I don't know why. I just, just one of those things. Anyway, the phone rang, and uh, she said, and I, I could hear it in the background. There was banging on the front door, and she said, "He's here." He's found us. And I just said to her, we're on the way. I turned around to the boys and they could see it in my face. It was something. And I said, get your shoes on. And probably eight, nine of us <laughs> went, went down to the bedsit. Um, and a couple of us came in from the right and a couple of us came in from the left and a few of us came in from the front and uh, there is this guy and A, he'd parked in the most god-awful fucking place uh, and blocked the road and so we knew that was his car 
and he is banging on that front door and he is shouting let me the fuck in get this fucking door open I don't know who hit him first um, might have been me can't remember I definitely hit him more than once in fact quite a few times more than once I don't think he understood what was going on uh, because one minute he's banging on the door the next minute he's lying on the floor in the fetal position being punched by <laughs> being punched by nine blokes <laughs> so um he was he he dropped claret all over the place. He was bleeding like a pig. Uh, so we grabbed him, and uh, we went over to his car, and the keys were still in the ignition. We opened the boot to his car, and put him in it, and then uh, a couple of us went in my car. And uh, a couple of a couple of guys were in this guy's car, and we all drove off to the truck stop. Um, I won't tell you where the truck stop was because that'd be a bit too obvious. But we took him to the truck stop, and there were quite a few lorries there. We taped his hands together, taped his legs together. We um, put him in the back of a lorry that was empty, as it happens. It wasn't, well, it was a lorry. It was a three and a half tonner, so it was more of a big van. So we put him in the back of this thing. And um, we then taped him to uh, one of the stillages that was in the back of this thing so that he couldn't move around. And what we said was, it, and we gave them the standard warning, you know, you ever come back to this city and uh, we will find you. And the next time you'll find yourself buried in concrete. Uh, and there was a, a lot of that sort of threatening stuff going on. He was trying to give it a load of lip, uh, but he, he was shitting himself. And it's always the way with bullies like that, you know, ridiculous guys so um <laughs> we sent him on his merry way uh one of the lads did point out actually when we got uh, we left his car uh, at the truck stop by the way with the keys in it so hopefully someone was going to nick it um we drove back to my flat and then one of the lads pointed out that uh, it did say on the side of that van that it came from leeds <laughs> I think we sent this guy to Leeds. I'm not sure. A couple of us went down to the bedsit and uh, we got um, a couple of buckets and cleared up the mess on the pavement. Um, a couple of the girls were there and uh, they went in and, and consoled Maggie, um, made sure she was okay. We told her that this guy wasn't going to come back that night uh without a doubt and uh 
if he did come back, just call us. Well, um, it was another few days later and I, I was talking to one of the guys that uh, does the spare fund distribution because we went out and we did a care home with him. And uh, he said, you know, that girl okay with the 500? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then I told him this ex was hanging around and he said, um, do you want to give her the 24-7 number? And that was special. That was very special. Certain people, vulnerable, vulnerable people who lived in the city had a phone number that they could call day or night. And all they had to do was phone it and give a um, location. And that would that would usually invoke a whole bunch of armed thugs, usually the family's um, bouncers or their um, their muscle basically would go to that address and deal with any situation that needed to be dealt with. Now, if this guy had ever turned up, Maggie had used that number, this guy would have ended. He wouldn't exist anymore. There's absolutely no doubt about that, because that's what they did. That number was very special, and it, was, it didn't just go out to anybody. It only went out to specific people. But it was a perfect case for her to have that number. And I was very grateful that I was able to give it to her. <clears throat> I gave her the number. Um, now, Christmas Day was always a bit weird because quite a few of us that were in our group were on our own. Um, you know, I, I've still got parents um i would normally go to my parents christmas dinner this particular year there was a couple of the girls that were on their own for whatever reason and a couple of the lads were on their own and so i said well you know let's let's try and get christmas dinner at our place and i paid for it the girls cooked it and uh we had christmas dinner at mine and we invited maggie and her son and because because of our, our circle the he wasn't on his own there were a couple of other kids there and we made it very very special for the kids uh, we had a great christmas dinner and a fantastic day and i think i think it gave her a taste of normality that she'd been missing for a hell of a long time. And then it came to present opening. And we said, okay, let's under the tree. And we had presents for the kids that were there and we had presents for us and all this, stuff. but no present for Maggie. And then one of the girls said, why isn't there anything here for Maggie? And I said, there must be. And she went, oh, no, 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 you really, you've done enough. And we were like, no, 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 must be one somewhere. 
And then at the back of the tree was a little box. And I said, oh, it's this one. And I gave that to her. And unbeknownst to her, me and the boys had got together and clubbed together and we bought her a car. Uh, and in the little box were the keys. And <laughs> we bought her a Volkswagen Golf. It was a fuck sight better than the Polo. <laughs> it was in really good condition. It was low mileage and everything. It was really good. And uh, it was hard for her, I think, to control her emotions at that point. But we all went down to look at the car, which was hilarious. And uh, big hugs all round. And I, I felt great. And the boys felt great because they'd done something for somebody less fortunate, which is what Christmas is all about. And, you know, you do things like that to make yourself feel good, I think, sometimes. And, and we certainly did, although it, it, you know, it obviously helped her out. Um, <laughs> by the we do, we saw Maggie every week or so you know either in the car park as she's going out and we're going out or you know she might pop around one night for a drink and you know if someone's looking after the kid but she didn't know anybody in Coventry That's that was the big problem there was one of the neighbours though that would look after the, the boy um Matey didn't come back, which I thought was a bit weird, really. Didn't seem the type to me to give up that easy. By the end of January, and I, I, I pictured the day even now, I went out to my car and um, a couple of the maintenance guys from the estate were uh, going in and out of Maggie's bedsit. So I went over and uh, I'd, I'd said, you know, you're right, boys. Are you doing some renovations? He said, oh, yeah, we're doing the uh, exit clean out. Exit clean out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tenant left. So we just cleaned the place up, ready for the next one. Bit of painting, bit of maintenance. She's gone. Yeah. Fuck. And I had absolutely no idea where. She didn't say goodbye. She didn't leave a note. Uh, she didn't make a phone call. The telephone number I had for her <coughs> uh, was out of service now. And uh, I was just amazed. I was just absolutely amazed. And I sat down that night with the with the guys and the girls in the flat and I, I said, I don't I don't get it. Why why would she do that? Uh, if she wanted to move on, that's fine, but why would she do that without a word? And then one of the girls said, 
I bet she's gone back to her ex. And she wasn't able to tell you that. And all of a sudden, a light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, yeah, okay. Okay. It was, I, I, I'd say I was down about it. I was more saddened by it. I know the boy needs a father and, you know, but he doesn't need that fucking idiot. What we should have done with hindsight is fix her up with one of the guys that we knew. Um, God knows there was a, enough of us floating around. We should have taken her to a, a few nights out and... Um, Maybe got her, pushed her towards somebody or, you know, I don't know. A year went by and uh, after, the, after the year, there was somebody else that came and went from that bedsit. And it kind of reminded me of her. And I hadn't really thought about her for a couple of months. It had kind of dim and distant past and life moves very quickly when you're that age you do tend to forget things and uh, that night I said to the boys you know we never we never got any idea of where she went why she didn't say goodbye and we put a lot of effort in uh, we we risked a lot for her. I'd also check with the family, by the way, just in case she'd ever used that phone number, but she never had. Weird. Very weird. Well, I hope at the end of the day she did okay. Um, it'd be nice to think that the boyfriend learnt his lesson, the partner, wherever he was, he learnt his lesson. That's even if she did go back to him. Did she just go somewhere else? I hate not knowing. Hated it. And I hated it for a lot of years. Um, the spare fund doesn't exist anymore. And that, that's a real shame, I think, because it it made a huge difference to a lot of people. And a lot of people that had nothing all of a sudden had something. And it, it made a lot of Christmases. But there you go. I guess you can lead a horse to water. But you can't make them drink. It's been Ken. This has been the Ken Burton Show podcast story for this week. I do hope you've enjoyed this one, ladies and gentlemen. As ever, I don't really want to leave you on a sad note. But as ever, I will see you on the dark side. I'm probably going to take a break next week, but I'll be back the week after. 
Have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas, guys. And a special message to the faithful. You guys are the bomb. You really are. I'll see you on the dark side, guys. Take care. Merry Christmas. Thank <laughs> you.